How's it going? Let me welcome you to Sundays at Coastal. This week, Pastor Andy Rock teaches a sermon out of Acts 23 titled, Telling the Truth. Today is about the heart of God for us when we face injustice, evil, or confrontation. As God's people, we lead and live with the gospel. Jesus is the author and creator and redeemer of all things, and yet Jesus doesn't live like he's entitled. Instead of demanding, Jesus sacrifices. Instead of insisting, Jesus loves. Instead of being defensive and accusing, Jesus speaks the truth in love. Instead of forcing, Jesus invites. Instead of controlling, Jesus allows for your free will. Instead of punishing, Jesus suffers with you and for you and in your place. You can trust this Jesus. Can I tell you about who we are? We do this every week uh, if you're new or visiting, so this isn't something just for you because we figured you're here for the first time. Um, this is something that we do every week because it's so important to be reminded and to understand what we're about as a church. First, uh, read it with me. There is always hope beyond our brokenness, always. So the gospel starts first with the uncomfortable truth that we're more broken than we want to admit. Right? But that's not, uh, it's not, that's not a message of shame and condemnation. That's just an accurate diagnosis. Yes? yes? And then, but there's hope beyond that because God doesn't leave us there. God doesn't keep us stuck there. God doesn't punish us for being broken. God saves us and redeems us and heals us and renews us and then teaches us how to trust in our risen Savior. And that's what we believe, that, that this word called belief or faith, it's a relationship word where we begin to put the weight of our lives in his capable hands, where we listen to him, we talk to him and share with him everything. I was talking with a friend last night um, who was going through it, and he was telling me that instead of going back to old coping mechanisms to numb now he was talking and praying. And that's what it looks like in the middle of our struggles to trust Jesus, right? We talk to our friends, but then also we pray it. Just like, G G um, Lee oh, more coffee. Uh, just like Zedekiah was saying to us as we prayed that we're learning to stand in God's love even when we're tired, even when we feel like we have nothing else. Even it feels like we've just been wrecked by grief and loss. Even when we feel like we're learning to stand and to live with joy and to live with hope. That's what we're learning how to do. We're not perfect, but we're learning. Amen? Yeah. And then third, just like Don Ann and Bill got to do, just like Chris got to do, we read this with me, we bring restoration for our community. And we love people well, right? We're not tipping people, hoping that they appreciate that. We're loving them well, to the fullest, like God loves us. Does that make sense? Yes. And that's what we get to do. We get to do that with our kids. We get to do that with uh, our friends in Guadalupe. We get to do that with Young Life, kids that are allergic uh, to church. We get to do that with college students. We get to do that with uh, our youth group, half of whom isn't even saved. I'm wondering right now um, if you would be willing to pray with me for our youth group. Uh, our, I don't know any other church whose, whose youth group is mainly pagans. Uh, 
Well, I mean, what else would you want, right? Like, we don't want to reach Christian kids. They're already Christians. Yes? We want to reach kids that don't know yet Jesus. But, but Zed and Denise and his team, they have a lot of, uh, I, I don't know, do you remember what it was like when your kids weren't saved and they were destroying your house? <laughs> now imagine 20 of them, right? That's how, that, that, that's how many kids we have that just need, that, that just need you. I'm, I'm wondering if on Tuesdays at, at 5.30, if you might put an alarm on your phone right now, that Tuesdays at 5.30 that you would pray for our youth group. That God's presence and his power would be so present there that these kids, they're already being loved so well, but they're just that next step that they would take. They would take that. Would you do that with me? And that's what we do. We bring restoration wherever we are. It takes time. It doesn't happen instantly, but that's what we do. Each one of these truths that we see and Scripture also has a choice that we get to make every day. And so we declare this together. So let's do this. If you're online, at home, in bed, on a car, in a walk, you're here, read this. Declare this with me out loud. Here we go. We are disciples who are intentionally with God. Therefore, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection. Amen. So, can I have permission this morning to speak to your heart of hearts? Yes. Some of you are like, well, that's fair. You don't know me maybe yet. Uh, I, I want to I talk to you today. Uh, today, if you like NCIS or courtroom dramas, today is for you, right? Uh, there are some amazing, funny moments in this passage, but also today is a day where the, the gospel is spoken to a place of our hearts that we might feel a little bit prickly about. And so I'm asking you uh, if, if we could lower our walls so that Jesus could tell us some things that, that maybe might be hard to hear. Would that be okay? Yes. Okay, so Jesus, we ask right now, God, that, that you would... Uh, Remove the resistance that we have to talk about our own defensiveness, our own entitlement. God, that you would help us to see and know how absolutely loved we are and to begin to trust you in places that we never thought that we even needed help in. So Lord, unplug our ears and open our eyes and drop the scales off of our eyes, God. And fill us with your spirit and renew us. And, and this space is yours. And so, you know what, devil? Not today. We bind up everything opposed to Jesus that's bothering us now. In Jesus' name, be quiet, be silent, be gone. And go to Jesus to be judged. Do you guys agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on now. Let's go. Here we go. Okay, so last week, incredible moment. You remember where we were last week? Acts chapter 22, Paul, all of his friends are like, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. God told me to tell you to not go to Jerusalem. Paul's like, Jesus told me to go to Jerusalem. And there he's preaching the gospel and all of his, the same people that were trying to hunt him down when he was in Turkey, 
They find him and they beat the tar out of him and then he gets arrested and then the, the Romans, they're a bright idea. They didn't know he was a Roman citizen yet. Their bright idea is we're going to shoot first and then ask questions. You remember that? So he's literally strung up and he's about to have all the skin on his back just ripped off by a cat of nine tails until he talks. And, and he's strung up there and, and he looks and, he, and he, he literally looks into the eyes of the sergeant holding the whip and he says, did you know that I'm a Roman citizen? There's, there's growing awareness in our country, especially of the tragedy this week in Memphis, that, that those who are in power cannot abuse their power. Um, so verse 29, the soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul, interrogate, that's a nice little word, right? <laughs> Beat the tar out of, right? quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen. Sergeant drops the whip, takes a step back. And the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. That's not good, right? They were afraid for their lives. What's the solution? Verse 30. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priests into session with the Jewish high council. The commander wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him stand before them. So the chief of police of Jerusalem has the power and the clout to call together the highest court in, in Israel. That's called the Sanhedrin. Can you say that with me? Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is 50 men, all rabbis, made up of liberal Sadducees who thought that cooperating with Rome provided more safety and profit... Does that make sense? So the Sadducees were like, well, we have Roman occupiers. We can't kick them out. They have a better army than we do, so we'll just cooperate with them. And yeah, they're taxing us, but we can also make some money too. And God is nice and wonderful and all that, but we live in the real world, and so we have to deal with these Romans, and we're not going to pray them away. We might as well cooperate with them. That's the Sadducees. On the opposite end of the political spectrum are the Pharisees. These are the conservatives. They think to themselves, the only way that we're going to get the Romans out is if we pray them out, if the whole nation repents, and then God would send his Messiah, and the Messiah would flex, and then the Romans would flee. Does that make sense? So the Pharisees are like, absolutely God is real. Absolutely angels are real. Absolutely the resurrection is real, because it's about doing the right thing now. And so the Pharisees are like, we, you can't mess up. They, their whole goal was to get Israel praying, repenting, moving towards God. And then the Romans would flee. And the Sadducees are like, let's get the whole country to stop trying to create violent revolutions because the Romans are just clamping down harder and harder and harder. So if we're just nice to them, then they'll stop killing us. That, those are the two parties, 50 rabbis, it's like Congress. Yes? Picking up what I'm putting down? That's the political landscape. So the chief of police, police wants to give Paul a fair trial. His first step is to put Paul in front of his own people 
so that he can be, have a fair trial. The idea that you and I, as citizens, would be considered innocent before proven guilty until we are given a fair trial is a Roman idea. That idea came from Rome, that its citizens would be given a fair trial first. So that's what the commander is doing. So the scene shifts to Paul standing before these 50 men, and Paul speaks. Read this with me. Are you ready? Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began. (laughs) Ooh, all right. And read the second verse. Immediately, instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul. Pa-pow! Ananias is the chief priest. He's sitting at the center of the 50 men. He's wearing all of the nice fancy robes. He's elevated higher than the rest of them. His chair is bigger. He's in charge. He's the chief priest. Does that make sense? And Paul, the former rabbi who was ordered by the Sanhedrin to kill those heretics called Christians is standing before them on trial. And the first thing that Paul says is, hey, I've lived before God with a clear conscience. But every listener in the room, all of the 50 rabbis there are saying, are you kidding me? You're the traitor, Paul. You're the heretic. We asked you to stamp out this heresy called Christianity. And instead, you converted and made it grow. And Ananias, who would five years later, go on trial in Rome before the Emperor Claudius for corruption, greed, and murder, he would get off. Don't worry, they don't. (laughs) how it works with politicians. Uh, Ananias Ananias says, would somebody slap the snot out of Paul? Pow! So Paul responds, verse 3. Can you picture the courtroom drama? Paul's on trial. The judge is there. The prosecutor is there. The judge is like, go ahead and punch him in the face. <laughs> right? Verse 3. Read this with me. But Paul said to him, God will slap you. Pause. Uh. God going to smack you. You corrupt hypocrite. Ooh. What kind of judge are you to break the law by yourself by ordering me struck like that? Oh, snap, Paul. Okay. Let me pause here for a moment. We're going to come back to this because this is like so juicy, right? This is like... 40 minutes into the episode when you're like, he did not say that, right? First, uh, you need to know, number one, it's okay to defend yourself. There is a difference between defending yourself and being defensive. Let me explain that. When you're being defensive, you're trying to not take responsibility for your actions, and your greatest weapon is to attack. Does that make sense? When you defend yourself, you take responsibility for what you've done, but you're also telling the full truth. 
you're giving context, being accurate about what actually happened, and you're not accusing the other or throwing blame back in the other direction. Every single person who's in a relationship right now got like uncomfortably quiet. <laughs> and they're like, well, you're talking about him, right? Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's talking about her for sure. Uh, so it's human nature to be defensive, not to defend ourselves, but to be defensive. We're like porcupines. When we bristle, we throw barbs. When we feel attacked, right? When your wife put, tells you to put the toilet seat down, Instead of saying, sorry, we say, well, how come you can't just put the toilet seat up? That's being defensive. When your husband asks you to stop yelling, you tell him, well, you yell at me all the time. Right? Being defensive is the primary tool politicians use. Right? Don't take responsibility for your actions. Instead, attack. Does that make sense? Right? Being defensive decreases communication. It creates division. It obscures the truth. It prevents healing, and it avoids repentance at all costs until the other person also admits that they're wrong. You know you're being defensive when you're not really listening to the person that's talking, but you're already just waiting, waiting, waiting to fire back while they, why they are also wrong. That's called being defensive. Defending yourself looks like telling the truth about what you've done and also giving context. It's, if you're yelling, it's saying, look, I'm sorry I'm yelling. I know that's not helpful, but I also don't feel heard right now. And that's making me angry and hurt. That's called defending yourself. It's admitting your mistake, but also giving the context of it. If there's a misunderstanding that creates hurt, defending yourself clarify, I mean, looks like clarifying what you meant, right? You can say, hey, look, what I said, I, I didn't mean it to hurt you, but I can see that you're hurt, and I'm sorry that I hurt you. Here's the context. Here's what I meant. Here's what I was trying to say. And also, it doesn't, defending yourself means I can apologize because I care about the other person, but I also don't have to live with whatever their accusation is if it's false. You picking up what I'm putting down? So defending yourself seeks the truth. It allows for connection and unity. It's fueled by empathy for the other person and also yourself. And it always includes taking responsibility for your actions. Always. Look, if you can never make a mistake or have to be right all the time, you'll be defensive. If you think you have to win, you'll be defensive. I'm guilty of that. If you're struggling with feeling worthless, you'll be defensive because admitting wrong will be too painful. The gospel, read this with me. The gospel is the good news that you're more broken than you would want to admit 
and at the same time more loved than you can ever dare to hope. If you believe you are loved, you can defend yourself against false information or accusations. If you believe you are a flawed human being like everyone else and also profoundly loved, you can admit your mistake. Anybody here not guilty? <laughs> so all of us can admit our mistakes and say, yes, I've, I'm making mistakes. We're never going to enter into any marriage, into any relationship, into any parenting interaction, into interaction with our parents, into any kind of communication that we have with anybody that's in any kind of significance in our lives with complete and 100% innocent, I'm right, they're wrong. It does not work that way. So Paul, when he walks into that courtroom, knows I've made mistakes. But that doesn't mean that the accusations leveled against me, I have to live with. He actually can defend himself. He can say, look, I have a clear conscience before God. That doesn't mean that I'm perfect. It just means that whatever you think I'm doing, I'm not doing. Second, notice that Paul speaks out against getting smacked in the mouth. I'm, I'm learning that it's absolutely essential to speak up against bad behavior. Not against the person who's doing the bad behavior themselves, because all of us do bad behavior, but the bad behavior itself, I'm learning I need to speak up against. Why? Well, I, I didn't really get this example when I was a kid, but I'm learning that's what mothers and fathers do. Mm-mm. No, no. Say what? Excuse me? Those are parenting phrases that speak up against no. What? Or this look. <laughs> Those are parenting tools to speak up against bad behavior. How does it work when you just let your kids do whatever they want to do? Not good. So this last year, I've been on a journey of getting healed and set free from my entitlement. Entitlement is the belief that I'm owed what I want, how I want it, when I want it, no matter the cost to anyone else. Now, here's the great thing about being a pastor, is that um, I, get, I, I can perform for you on a Sunday morning, and you won't know who, who I am really, unless I actually talk to you about it. And so... I realized, and I was even blind to this for a long time, that I've been totally entitled for decades. Um, but it's been behind closed doors. And, and it's not been pretty. I've taught my kids how to be entitled. And so our whole family's on this journey of realizing that we're, we're not going to get what we want, when we want it, how we want it every time, no matter what it costs anybody else. And so last week, I just kept letting things slide. Uh, I was doing a workout with friends in our garage, and, uh, 
and Pete, Levi was coming into, my son was, teenage son was coming into the garage, interrupting our entire workout to do whatever he wanted to do. Instead of me saying, hey, no, 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 not now. I didn't confront that. Just small things. But I'm, I wasn't actually saying no. I was just allowing whatever. Oh, what do you need? Feeding his entitlement. And then what happened? Oh, then I started feeding my own. Well, I could do what I want to do when I want to do it. And so when people in my family needed me, guess what I was doing? I was doing what I wanted to do. I don't know if you know this. In fact, I know all of you know this actually profoundly. That when you need someone, your friend, your family member, your spouse, your brother, your sister, and they say, well, when it's convenient for me, how does that feel? Not good. At the end of my life, I don't want you or my wife or my kids or my grandkids or my friends to say, well, he loved it. He loved us uh, as long as it didn't cost too much. You want that written on your tombstone? Um, she loved us with the minimum effort required. Uh, he loved us only when he was rested. Uh, she loved us when it fit her schedule. He loved me when I was pleasant. But when I made him feel uncomfortable, not so much. I want the people close to me to say, Andy did everything he could to love me without a thought as to the cost to the fullest for my sake so that I would know that I was worthy of every good thing, a love that showed me the extravagant mercy and grace and generosity of Jesus. Is that what you want? One person said yes. That's good. We have a start. Amen. Hallelujah. Paul gave everything to love his friends. He didn't feel entitled to an easy life. Even when Jesus told him to go to Jerusalem, even when the Holy Spirit warned him, you're probably going to get beat up in Jerusalem and bound. Everyone was going to be dangerous. Everyone you'd encounter is going to be dangerous. Paul's goal was to love his people, not just his Christian friends, but his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters who were actively beating him up and to give them, the people, his own nation, his own tribe, his own heritage, his own race, a chance to hear the gospel. And if that meant confronting injustice when he was slapped by the high priest, he was going to do it. And Paul was going to confront injustice and speak up against evil because Jesus does the same. And Jesus doesn't respond to your mistakes and the injustice that you do and the evil that you allow with violence. He will never smack you in the mouth. Oh, someone say, thank God. Right? You're never going to be walking down the street and all of a sudden God himself will show up and just go, pow, stop it. It's not how God works. 
He's going to tell you the truth about what you've done, give you a chance to repent, because our God is merciful and loving, always. But of course, that's not how the crowd responds. Verse, verse 4, those standing near Paul said to him, what? Do you dare insult God's high priest? I think this is probably the funniest moment in the book of Acts right here. Are you ready? Here it is. Verse 5. Oh, I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest. <laughs> the dude with the robe sitting on the highest chair in the middle of everybody. Clearly, he's the man. He's got a name tag on that says Ananias, high priest. He's got the thing on it with the gavel. Everybody knows that Ananias is the high priest. And Paul's like, yeah, with one sentence just destroys Ananias's facade of power and prestige and respect. It's hilarious. And everybody's all, ooh, I can't believe you said that. And you're on trial. What? And all of Ananias's political opponents are like, <laughs> And all of Ananias' friends are like, oh, snap. Oh, oh no. Oh, we should be mad, right? And then Paul pulls another brilliant move. He says, for the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. So then he totally throws the theological, oh, yeah, I didn't mean that. Yeah, I didn't, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't say that. This is so fantastic. So here we have... In 50 rabbis, all of Ananias' uh, people that don't like him are like, <laughs> and then all of Ananias' friends are like, <gasps> getting all mad. And Paul realizes that with one little tiny push, he could create a political argument in which Ananias was the center rather than Paul. And so if Paul in verse 6 says this. Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I'm a Republican, <laughs> as were my ancestors, and I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. And all the Democrats went, no! And all the Republicans went, yes! And the chamber explodes. Verse 7, the divided council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection of angels and spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. And then, ba-boom, verse 9. So there was a, read it with me, great uproar. Wow, some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees just beat the snot out of the Sadducees. We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. I mean, they're just like, oh, this is full tilt, political, just mortars, howitzers to the other side of the aisle. And Paul's just like, skirt, I'm just going to like back up. You all can like fight amongst yourselves, Right? shoving, fist fights. It's just awesome. And you think to yourself, oh my gosh, these people are just unbelievable. I cannot even... What's up with it? Like 2,000 years ago, the Jews, they're just fighting about everything. Oh, uh, next slide. Um, <laughs> this is the Ukrainian parliament. Next slide. 
Um, here's the Taiwanese parliament. Next slide. Um, this is Malaysia. Next slide. Um, here's South Korea. This is, this is Congress. These are, this is Congress, right? Be like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, like pulling out knives, going against Mitch McConnell, who everybody else is. In. Right, next slide. There's the Ukrainians again. Next slide. This is in Nambia. Next slide. Oh, here's tear gas, right? Because uh, they would not stop fighting. And then last slide, that's my favorite right there. Just kapow, right? Now, I, we, in courtroom dramas, we always want to picture ourselves as the defendant, right? And Paul's got all the great lines in this episode, right? He's got all the great lines. And we want to say, oh, man, I'd do that. Yeah, that's where I'd be. Uh-huh. But that's not actually who we are most of the time. In this story, who we are most of the time is actually the Sanhedrin. That's the thing about Christians and about church in America today and even us in our different political spectrums is that, is that we would rather fight against each other on the finer points of politics or policy or theology or worship styles, or the color of the carpet, or which color we should change the drapes to, or what kind of toilet paper we have in bathrooms, or whatever it is, churches are famous for fighting over stupid stuff, than actually loving non-Christians to the fullest. See, in God's kingdom, the fight is never against each other. The fight is against the enemy of our souls. The fight is against evil. The fight is against our own self-centeredness, our own entitlement, and our own defensiveness. The Jewish law in the Old Testament has one purpose. It's a diagnostic tool. It's to help you understand that you can never be perfect on your own. This is why the gospel starts with the hard truth that we're more broken than we want to admit. But the Jewish story which is our story, is the story of a God who saves his people even when they're absolutely dead set against him. Slaves in Egypt, no problem, I'll save you. The the Jewish people, they've been given everything and then they forget God and then the Babylonians came, those are the Iraqis, the Jews get taken into captivity, spend 70 years in Babylon, God rescues them even when they deny him. That's our God. And what is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah? It's God who comes in the flesh to save us and to die for us in our place, even when we are rejecting him fully. That's our story of being saved. Those of us who are not perfect, who have no reason to be defensive because we're guilty, who have no reason to be entitled because we're guilty. That's who God saves, not because we're worthy of it, but because he is. This is why Paul went to Jerusalem. Paul went to preach the gospel, the story of he'd been lost and now found, dead and now alive, all because of Jesus. And then when he's arrested and put on trial, The highest court of the land is exposed as being men 
I was being filled with men who would rather seek revenge and power than justice and truth. Is there any more compelling evidence that we cannot save ourselves than this? That the very courts that we create in order to establish justice are filled with people who would rather have power and revenge than actual justice. Somebody say amen. Amen. But Paul's story doesn't stop there. The chief of police sees the chaos and literally plucks Paul out of the melee. Verse 10, as the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. Why? Because Paul's in the middle of this huge parliamentary fight and people are literally tearing apart. No, he's on my team. No, we want to kill him. No, we don't. You can't kill him. He's on my team. No, we're going to kill him. And the commander's like, let's get in there. We'll pull this guy out. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. And what happens that night when Paul's in prison? Jesus, the only true and just judge, shows up and says this. Read this with me. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Can I be Jesus to you just for a moment? Because I know right now in your life, maybe it feels like you're just being torn in half between all the things you've got to do and all the people you need to love and all the situations that you want to fix and help and the great needs that you have and the great hopes that you have, but then just feeling like you might not be enough for it. Or feeling like those people aren't, they're never going to say yes to what you're offering. And you just feel pulled and torn. Can I say the same words to you that Jesus says to Paul? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. I know you feel like those things are insurmountable that your family's facing or that you're facing. I know you feel tired of realizing, oh my gosh, I made another mistake and I didn't realize I was doing it and I hurt someone I loved again. I I know that maybe you just feel exhausted right now of the person who's continually lead the charge towards God's kingdom and God's will and the truth and other people in your family or in your circle are just dragging their feet. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Why? How could Jesus say this to Paul who's in prison? Why am I saying this to you now? To be encouraged. Because you're loving them to the fullest and you're praying for them and your caring for them isn't in vain. You have no idea the power and significance of your simple acts of generosity and love and prayers, what difference they make in the scope of eternity. You don't. Our first 
tool is to always discount ourselves and say, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter. I just said a simple prayer. What difference does that make? What difference does it make? It's how you got here. You, here now, someone said simple prayers and loved you to the point that you're here. Am I missing that? Did anybody here was on a, like, a different planet and got rescued and brought here? Like we were all born here, right? All of us got our stories of being twists and turns and we were surrounded by people that they didn't give up. They were encouraged even in the midst of our foolishness and our stupidity and our rebellion. And they said, I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna keep on loving you and I'm gonna keep on loving you until we got it. God doesn't do anything in vain. I want to encourage you. What you're doing is working. You might not see the results you're not entitled to, but it doesn't mean it's not working. Uh, I mean, we never know what's going to happen next. Verse 12, this is next week. Here's the preview. The next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. 40 of them. That's next week, though. <laughs> For you, me, today, look, I need you to know something about the heart of God. When you and I face injustice, when we face loss, when we face evil, when we face the need for confrontation, as God's people, we lead and live with the gospel. Because Jesus is the only person in the entire universe who actually has a right to be entitled, to get what he wants, when he wants, how he wants it, at any time. Why? Because he's God. (laughs) And the very breath that you're taking right now and the heartbeat that you have right now is only because he allows it. He is worthy of everything that we have. And everything that we own, it's all his. He made it. And yet Jesus isn't entitled. Instead of demanding, Jesus sacrifices. Instead of insisting, Jesus loves. Instead of being defensive and accusing, Jesus speaks the truth in love. Instead of forcing, Jesus invites. Instead of controlling, Jesus allows your free will. Instead of punishing, Jesus suffers with you and for you, and in your place. That's why you are to be encouraged. Because the God of the universe is never, ever absent from you. He is with you now. Can we pray? God, I ask your forgiveness for my defensiveness and entitlement. I ask your forgiveness, Jesus, for the ways in which I have just insisted on my way and my timing and my plan. And God, I know so many are are praying, are joining me in that prayer right now. God, forgive us. And I ask that you pour encouragement into the hearts of my friends here today. The little moments of love 
are making a difference. The little moments of sacrifice are making a difference. The big moments are making a difference. And you're in charge of it all, Jesus. So we trust you. We say to you, great are you, Lord. And we give you praise and thanks for all the things that you're doing in our life. Even the hard stuff. We stand on the solid rock of your faithful love. And all God's people say, amen. amen. Would you stand for the benediction? We have incredible custom homemade flatbread for you with some feta cheese and some, some special sauce. And oh my gosh, it's incredible. Calorie free. Also, join us across the street for Table Talk if you'd like to. Don't forget, you can pick up your giving statements. And if you'd like prayer this morning, come forward. We'll pray for you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you. Give you peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go 49ers. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 1040 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. 